walk a path overgrown, its mysteries made of flesh and bone. The voices sing their mournful songs and chant their tales of right and wrong. Yes, I walk a path overgrown, its mysteries made of flesh and bone. And finally their stories sown, respite comes to the unknown. Ah, fellow humans, greetings. You caught me rhyming. I am a fan of rhyming. Not only is it pleasing to the ear, but it is said that there is great power in statements of truth, and greater power in statements of truth that rhyme. Said by whom, you ask? What a delicious question, young dartboard. Anyway, I am delighted and simply chuffed with childlike cheer that you are here. It is a dark night. There is a mist, fellow humans. One that lends itself to dark shadows. Unnatural shadows. And it is here we tread. The truth often leads to very dark places, fellow humans, and tonight's tale is no different. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Welcome to ASM Murder, the only true crime podcast with an ASMR twist. I am your humble host, The Guru, and it's time to unravel rampant, reprehensible, and sometimes rustic tales about old murders you might or might not know and their unfortunate victims. If this is your first time around with me, I urge you to grab your umbrella and something warm to wear. Worry not, I know my way here. Just stay close and keep your eyes on the path, for I have treacherous, troublesome, tactile tales to tell. Your eyes can play tricks on you, but tonight they aren't tricks. Keep to the path and you'll be fine. Today's episode is number 22, and the case I'll tell you about today was suggested by my friend Hope. We here at ASM Murder thank you, Hope. Today we'll discuss the murder of a small family of three that occurred in Southern Virginia, North America in 2002. That puts this story right near my neck of the woods, fellow humans. Very near. Anywho, tonight we'll be discussing the Short family, a small family who came to a grisly end. Content warning. Today's episode contains graphic content not suitable for some audiences, which include descriptions of dead bodies, including one of a child, crime scenes, and kidnapping. Listener discretion is therefore advised. The short family consisted of three people, two parents and their nine-year-old daughter. The eldest was Michael Wayne Short, born February 18, 1952. He had a brother and two sisters, and he would marry and have three sons, although his marriage unfortunately failed. Then there's Mary Frances Hall, born April 20th, 1966, over 14 years after Michael. She had six siblings and grew up in the same area of Southern Virginia that Michael had been raised in. The two eventually met and became partners, then husband and wife, and then they had a daughter, Jennifer Renee Short, born July 12, 1993. She was described as being a sweet girl who was close with both of her parents, and by 2002, she was going to start fourth grade at Fisborough Elementary School. The Short family lived together in Oak Level, Virginia, 
an hour south of Roanoke and an hour north of Greensboro, North Carolina. There were about a thousand people living there, and this number has done nothing but become smaller and smaller as time goes by. Oak Level is simply a stop for many. The Short family lived just off of U.S. Route 220, a busy thoroughfare in the region, on Virginia Avenue. In their neighborhood, they were known as being a close-knit family that tended to keep to themselves, yet were friendly towards people they knew. Michael, Mary, and Jennifer seemed to get along with each other and their larger extended families, and they didn't have any known disputes with each other. Michael and Mary worked for the same company, MS Mobile Home Movers. The MS in the company stood for Michael Short, who owned and managed the business that had started to decay as the new millennium came by. By 2002, the Shorts had put their house on the market due to the money problems they were having, and they were planning to move into a mobile home until things got better. In 2002, Michael considered moving with his family to South Carolina, where he had managed lots of businesses in the past. He viewed it as a chance to have a fresh start and a place to raise his daughter alongside Mary. Now... Fast forward to the Wednesday evening of August 14, 2002. Michael was with his employee, Chris Thompson, who was working alongside his boss on a vehicle and then left for a motel that he'd been staying in after sunset. The last time that the shorts were seen together was about 11 p.m. that same evening when they went to a Burger King drive through in Collinsville to grab some dinner. It's believed they went to bed at some point after midnight and what they did during the next hours is still a complete mystery. Thompson returned to the Short's home before 9am as he wanted to meet with Michael to drive him to Christiansburg where they'd pick up a truck for the mobile home moving business. But when he arrived at the home he saw the garage door open and assumed his boss was asleep inside or working on a truck. Michael had a couch in his garage where he would normally fall asleep. There was a rumor that his snoring was so loud it tended to keep Mary awake, so he slept outside in the garage. When Chris entered the garage, he saw his boss laying on the couch and at first believed he was asleep. But we aren't here to discuss the sleeping, are we fellow humans? Chris soon realized that his boss was dead and called the police. Officials with the Henry County Sheriff's Office appeared at the scene pretty quickly and soon found Michael's dead body. After looking around the house, they found out that Mary had been killed too, but Jennifer disappeared without leaving a trace. She was nowhere to be found, so authorities began to contact Short's relatives and friends, who mostly lived close to the house. They didn't have a clue as to the girl's whereabouts. The same afternoon in which her parents' bodies were found, authorities issued an Amber Alert that extended to hundreds and hundreds of miles out, and soon Jennifer's picture could be found all over different news broadcasts, and even larger networks ran with the story at first. Many searches were carried out in the following days that included loved ones of the girl, volunteers and police units, horses, ATVs, canine units, and even a helicopter were used to find out where Jennifer was to no avail. Early on in the investigation, there was a report that stated that Michael's dark pickup truck was missing, but this isn't mentioned in any of the later reporting, so it was probably found. 
In the following days, police conducted many searches throughout the area, including a pond near where the shorts lived, the only considerably big body of water in the area. They found nothing useful there, and the same thing happened with the search at a motel near the family's home, known to attract drug addicts and transients. Early in the investigation, police said they were looking for a specific vehicle, a red or dark colored van, truck or pickup, possibly Michael's vehicle. At first, authorities believed that Jennifer ran away when her parents were killed and she might have gotten lost in the wilderness. Officials insisted that there was no evidence hinting that the girl had been injured at all. When she still hadn't shown up after long hours passed since the murders, authorities listed Jennifer's disappearance as a potential abduction. They even brought out the bloodhounds in an attempt to track her scent, but they were only able to pick up the girl's scent in areas where the police already knew that Jennifer had been, like her own home. They couldn't find anything useful with the dogs, and so authorities now fully believed that she had been kidnapped, which was a strange event to happen in the area. After putting up an Amber Alert for Jennifer on August 15th, authorities received tips from states far away like Missouri, but they weren't helpful and they didn't help finding the girl. Not yet, at least. There were no suspects in the early investigation, and the person who found the bodies, Chris Thompson, cooperated fully with the authorities, and he told the police that when he left the Shorts' home late August 14th, the family was safe and sound. He was quickly cleared as a suspect after weeks of being questioned by authorities. As the family's home had been recently put up on the market, real estate records were pulled to check who had been in the house in the past, but it's unknown if this had led to any results, though investigators believed that the culprit of the crime might have taken advantage of the property's open houses to investigate the home's layout. Over a week after the bodies were discovered, August 23, 2002, the bodies were buried in a public funeral, which had cameras hidden by police to see if anyone acted strangely, but this yielded no results. On September 4th, authorities exhumed Michael's body to do additional testing, and people soon began to theorize that he wasn't Jennifer's biological father, but that wasn't the truth, although it did generate many theories. Authorities soon stated that about 10 years before being killed, Mary had a stalker who harassed her at work. In the early 90s, she worked at the Pluma Inc. plant in the Bowles Industrial Park, a place that closed back in the last year of the millennium. Mary worked as a seamstress there and had been given the nickname Little Mary. More than once, a man looking for Mary had been asked to leave the plant's property, and one time in 1992, he even entered the plant and was asked to leave by a manager who said the stranger left in a white pickup truck. However, Authorities couldn't find records of Mary filing any kind of protective order in the past. In fact, she asked people who were present in the 1992 incident to not contact police. This person wasn't recognized by any of her co-workers, and it wasn't Michael, so his identity is unknown. A year after the incident, Jennifer was born. Perhaps this timing was what made authorities question who Jennifer's biological father was. Six weeks after, it was confirmed that Michael was, in fact, his daughter's father. The media attention focused on the missing child who hadn't been seen since late in August 2002. Family members and authorities pleaded to Jennifer's abductor to release her and let her go to see her loved ones, using the help of the press to spread their message. 
Jennifer's disappearance made citizens band together to raise awareness of the case, decorating every street with photos of the girl, and news anchors regularly updated everyone with details of the case. Unfortunately, luck wasn't on their side. It's September 2002, and a man called Eddie Albert, who lived about an hour south of the crime scene, found a strange thing in his front yard. Rather, it was his dog who turned up with what seemed to be hair coming from a wig, and thinking it was that, Eddie threw it away without thinking much of it. His dogs would return two days later, precisely on September 25th, with what seemed like a turtle shell. Looking closer, Eddie realized it was a human skull, and soon he contacted the police. Authorities went to Eddie's home in Stonewall, North Carolina, a small town in Rockingham County. He directed them to where his pets had found both the skull and the hair that he had thrown away. Soon, a large search of the area began, and police located the remains of a child, dumped near a pond along a rural road. Teeth and bone fragments were found under a bridge as well as part of a ribcage, but not much more than a quarter of a skeleton was recovered. Because of how close to the Shorts' home these bones were found, it was about 35 miles north, many believed that it was Jennifer, but authorities denied it even though the skull, belonging to a young girl or woman, had a single small caliber gunshot to the head like Michael and Mary Short had died of. The remains were soon tested, yet weren't officially identified for more than a week, and the loved ones of the victims started to fear that it actually was Jennifer and she would never return home alive. Sadly, it was revealed on October 4, 2002, that it actually was the youngest Short. The only thing they could determine was that she had died of a gunshot, but nothing else could be found out due to how decomposed her remains were. Everyone was shocked, trying to figure out why the culprit had killed the Short family but abducted Jennifer, and soon many believed that she was the target of the killer. The murderer had everything planned out, going as far as cutting the phone lines, but since nothing had been stolen, it made people believe that the girl had been who the killer was after. Jennifer had died during the six weeks between when she was kidnapped and when she was found. Investigators believe that someone had seen Jennifer and become infatuated with her, though she didn't tend to separate herself much from her parents and she had a good relationship with them. It was known that she tended to go to a convenience store near her family's home, a Circle C, that was just a few hundred feet away and she knew and was friendly with the locals of the staff, but they were all questioned extensively and were all cleared. The media speculated about possible theories for a while after Jennifer was taken, but months and years afterward their interest in the case faded away as investigators began narrowing their suspects down to one person, a man described as either a witness, someone of interest, or even a suspect. Garrison Storm Bowman was a 66-year-old carpenter and avid outdoorsman who became a crucial part of the case after Jennifer's remains were found. He was originally named a material witness by authorities, but later he became investigators' main suspect. Police alleged that Bowman fled to Canada one day after the crime. Days later, authorities received a call from his landlord in which he mentioned that two days before the murder took place, Bowman mentioned paying a man in Virginia to move his mobile home, and if he didn't follow through or return his money, he would have to kill him. A delightful fellow, to be sure. 
And as you might have guessed, authorities believe that the man Bowman was talking about was Michael Short, whose business focused exactly on that, though he didn't have a license to work in North Carolina. Garrison Bowman's landlord then claimed that on August 15th, when the Short family was killed, he saw Bowman with a pistol in his hands. Then he was gone by the following day, and his trailer had disappeared too. It was later discovered about one mile away from where Jennifer's body was found the next month on a property of a friend of his that lived nearby. After receiving these phone calls from Garrison Bowman's prior landlord, police searched a piece of property belonging to the carpenter and found a map that seemed to mark a route that ended up at Short's home. Some publications said that an X was marked right where the property was. John Beasley, a friend of Garrison Bowman's, tried to explain his friend's actions, including why he moved away to Canada. He claimed that Bowman planned the trip for years, but coincidentally left at the same time that the murders happened. Beasley also said that Bowman's trailer wasn't abandoned, but that he had offered his friend to keep it on his property until a buyer from Michigan could pick it up. Keep in mind that this property was coincidentally about a mile away from where Jennifer's remains were found. So many coincidences. Strange, eh, fellow humans? Other friends of Bowman's claimed that he was an alcoholic that drank from the early morning until he fell asleep, so he wouldn't have been able to commit the crime. Some others vouched for him to claim that he had been too drunk on the afternoon and evening of August 14th to commit any kind of violent crime. On October 15th, 2002, police announced that they were planning to travel to Yellowknife a city in Canada's Northwest Territories to find and speak with Bowman, who had been planning to live off the grid for a time. Although that plan didn't last long because he had already been detained by Canadian authorities in Inuvik, in the northeast part of the country and right above the Arctic Circle. He had been arrested for driving drunk as well as violating immigration laws, having lied about his prior criminal history, which included past convictions for drinking and driving. Soon he had to return to the U.S. and remained in police custody for a month. On October 30th, Bowman appeared in court in Henry County, but was released from police custody later that day. He remained released until November 12th when he appeared in front of a grand jury in Roanoke, Virginia, in a hearing related to the Short family murders, but there wasn't enough evidence to charge him with any kind of involvement with the crime. Later that month, Bowen was convicted for his drunk driving offense from Canada and was sentenced to a paltry seven days in jail. He was never charged for the Short family murders and he denied any involvement with the crime, although he remained a person of interest in the case. About three years had to pass until the spotlight left Bowman and fell to different people. In 2005, U.S. Attorney John Brownlee unveiled a case against two men, Timothy Fennin Sampson and Jerry Riley Mills, who he claimed had lied to the authorities. These men said they saw Bowman leaving the short home with a young girl when the crime happened, and this made investigators pointlessly build the case around Bowman, wasting hundreds and perhaps thousands of hours focusing on finding leads connecting to him. Sampson and Mills were charged with a lot of crimes, including conspiracy, perjury, and providing false information to law enforcement. And perhaps they also threatened two men investigating the crime, as they wanted to get the money by linking Bowman to the murders. Someone else also lied to the investigators. Tony Lee Epperson, 
and he was involved in the case that was unveiled by the U.S. Attorney John Brownlee in 2005. The three men were convicted and sentenced to several months in prison. In 2007, authorities announced that Garrison Bowman wasn't a suspect for the case anymore, and he ended up passing away in December 2014. On July 22, 2003, the creek in which Jennifer's remains were found was being investigated once again. And a few months later in September, the girl's remains were exhumed for forensic purposes, but authorities were secretive and didn't reveal if they had found any additional evidence thanks to this or not. The girl's remains were buried once again the following morning. They had done the same thing with her father's remains, if you remember. And with this exhumation, people's imagination started to flourish, and a theory that said that Jennifer wasn't Michael's biological child appeared. Police officials said that they hadn't been answering questions about that theory on purpose, because while they thought the girl was still alive, they thought that sharing that Michael was her actual father might have made the kidnapper kill the child, perhaps even taking her away because they believed she was their kid. But, well, we know how that ended up already. Police only addressed the paternity claims once Jennifer's remains were found. In December of 2003, authorities would travel to an airport in Kamloops, British Columbia, following clues about a mysterious woman who the news and record of Greensboro noted might be able to, quote, be able to shed some light on the case. They met with Canadian officials and tried to establish a timeline for a person of interest that apparently met in the airfield with an unknown lady. And as recounted by Corporal Joanne Screen of the RCMP, quote, a meet took place in the airfield between the woman and a person of interest in the investigation. That person may have had contact with this woman in or around that area during the time of the investigation, end quote. There's few details of this woman, but it was revealed that she was a slim Caucasian woman in her late 40s or early 50s with reddish blonde hair. In 2004, Frank Arrington, Michael's uncle, publicly expressed that he wasn't satisfied by how the investigation was going, claiming that the investigators hadn't handled the case correctly since the beginning by allowing people to enter and leave the crime scene immediately after bodies were found. Four years after the murder in 2006, it was revealed that many members of the Henry County Sheriff's Office who were investigating the case were indicted for corruption. Among the officers implicated was Sheriff H. F. Cassell himself, who had been the public face of the investigation since its inception back in 2002. About a dozen officers sold drugs and guns taken from criminals, filed in official papers as having been destroyed. They profited from this and these acts helped bolster up a drug distribution and money laundering ring in the region. This also damaged their integrity in their department and the most high-profile investigation of the county to date. Knowing that the investigators in charge were corrupt, it's unknown if they actually had been a hindrance in the case or not. They may have deterred other people from investigating them by deflecting attention elsewhere. Soon, new officials came to lead the investigation and they helped hand it off to other regional and federal authorities who took a more active role in unraveling the case afterwards. A task force dedicated to solving the case was formed a year prior and the team consisted of people from Henry County Sheriff's Office, the Rockingham County Sheriff's Office in North Carolina, members of the Virginia State Police, 
the FBI office out of Lynchburg, and the U.S. Attorney's office, and they began meeting regularly to discuss the case. They would begin pooling resources on the case files, nearly 3,000 leads, and would compile several persons of interest over the next few years without sharing any public information about these leads. On March 18, 2009, the FBI released several sketches to the public, including one of a potential suspect. It was a drawing of a man seen around Short's house near the time the parents were killed. He was described as being in his 40s with a weathered complexion, and the sketches showed how he looked back then and how he might look seven years in the future. There was also a sketch of a white, single-cab, flatbed body truck with wooden rails which the FBI theorized had been made between 1998 and 2002, so it was a pretty recent model. It's believed that the vehicle was seen near the family's home early on August 14, 2022. May 2010 FBI agents visit many coastal cities in South Carolina in which they talk with many people about the unresolved triple murder. The cities visited included Bennettsville, Conway, Florence, and Myrtle Beach which were all cities that Michael had traveled to in the months before the murder and were all cities that he had considered moving the family to. As so many details of the investigation are kept away from the public, there's not much we know about a possible culprit, apart that they were probably familiar with the region due to where Jennifer's remains were found. That part of rural Rockingham County is not visited very often, and it's strange that someone that doesn't live there to know where it is or that it even exists. The murderer wasn't focused on robbing the family, as there was about $600 in cash on the kitchen counter. Also, the culprit probably had some knowledge of the shorts' routines due to knowing that Michael was sleeping in the garage. It may have been easier to access, and gunshot sounds might have been muffled to the rest of the house. Before committing the crime, the culprit cut the phone lines of the house and killed Mary and Michael when they slept, so it might have been carefully planned. Then they kidnapped Jennifer for an unknown reason that we can just theorize about. She might have been the main reason why the murderer killed the parents and abducted her. Jennifer's remains were too decomposed for authorities to figure out if they had been a sexual assault or not, but we can't rule it out. Sadly, that kind of stuff is pretty common in these cases. In 2015, investigators announced that they were going to stop focusing on Michael and Mary and start focusing on Jennifer, thinking that, as she was the one who was kidnapped, she had been the motivation behind the crimes and her parents were simply collateral damage. It's sad to think about, but it's probably true. About a year after the Short family were murdered, a bridge was renamed to honor Jennifer. It was the bridge in North Carolina's Rockingham County along Grogan Road as the girls' remains were found underneath it. It's known as the Jennifer Renee Short Memorial Bridge, home of many memorial events and bike rides, many organized by people close to the deceased. Four months after the incident, the Short's home was auctioned off in December of that same year, and it ended up pretty much vacant for the most part of the 16 following years. And so it happened precisely on February 20th. The Collinsville Fire Department got a call at about 4 a.m. about a fire, and they quickly went towards the house that used to belong to the Short family. Yes, the house that had remained vacant for about two decades, 
bought by a renovator that had bought the house over a decade before was in flames. Firefighters fought the fire for many hours, but the house had been pretty much destroyed. Even though they found a gas can at the scene, investigators couldn't figure out the reason why the flames had started. If an exact cause was found, it was never revealed to the general public. The home that used to belong to the Short family now remains as an empty lot, and locals aren't happy as they remember how the house was connected to the known homicides. Some people think that the fire might be related to other fires that occurred in the same area back then. They were probably made by an arsonist, though other people suspect that the culprit of the murder of the Short family went back to erase any evidence they thought they may have left behind. Even though two decades have passed since the murders occurred, the case has been reopened and there's even about a thousand different pieces of evidence and even a $62,500 reward for anyone who offers useful information that might help find the culprit or culprits of these killings. If anyone knows anything, please contact the Henry County Sheriff's Department at 276-656-4200. Who knows, perhaps someone who is listening has the key to opening this particular door. Perhaps one day we can offer some sort of respite to the Short family. What do you think, fellow humans? Do you think the universe offers us glimpses into the unknown? Does it offer answers? Or does it stand indifferent to life and death? <laughs> you see that, humans? You know what that is? It is a crossroads. The very crossroads at which I must leave you. Worry not. The tale is told and the mist has gone its course. But before you go your way, please wait a moment longer. Do you happen to know about any other striking, stunning, or studious tales that you'd be interested in knowing about? Tales hidden in plain sight, perhaps? Stories that might make you shiver whenever you hear the whisper of the wind and the moan of the dead? Yeah? Consider letting me know with a comment in any of my socials, like my YouTube or my personal website. Remember to hit that bell to not miss any new content for my channel. You can usually find me here at 6am Eastern on Mondays, though you must remember that sometimes life gets in the way. I may be late, but just wait. I will come eventually. Worry not. That was episode 22 of ASM Murder. If you want to catch up on any episodes you missed, or if you just want to hear more of me in general, you can go to my website, murderpod.net. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-P-O-D dot net. You can also find my podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I'll leave links in the description. If you enjoy what you heard, I'd love to hear your thoughts, or, well, read your comments anyway. Thank you for lending me some of your time. Time is a precious gift. We must never squander it. May yours be filled with love and light. Until next time, please be kind to yourselves and be good to each other. Take care. This is your friendly neighborhood crew, signing off.